Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with two very special guests, Erica Batista and Gon Sanchez, both of the OnDeck team. And we're here today to talk about uh, the tech space in Europe and, and how it's evolved and what's uh, what's exciting and where, where the opportunities are. Erica, Gans, well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So but by way of introduction, and Erica, let, let, let's start with you. Why don't you give a bit of a of, of, of personal history on, on your involvement in, in the European tech space and, and how and maybe a bit of a macro, how you've seen the space uh, evolve over time? So I arrived uh, in Europe 10 years ago. Out of those 10 years, I've been living in France for the past eight. Um, and basically, I got here. Um, I used to be a lawyer, uh, but I was really interested in the tech space. Uh, and I was looking for kind of a way in. And um, I saw that there was an incubator when I was living in Paris. I saw there was an incubator that was kind of doing exciting things. And I got in touch. And, and that turned out to be a, a place called The Family, which was the first kind of startup accelerator in France uh, that turned out to be kind of an ecosystem builder. Uh, we had a you know, deep impact in the ecosystem. And, uh, you know, like if you, when you ask me, how have I seen the, the European tech scene evolve in the past, uh, you know, eight years that I've been here? Basically, I, I like to share one anecdote. During the first year of the family, we had a portfolio company that raised 400K. And that was the biggest round uh, that we've had at that point. Uh, and so we rented out a castle and we, talk, we took the entire team and all the other portfolio companies to go on that weekend to celebrate the biggest heat round that we'd ever had. And, uh, and just, you know, fast forward to, you know, eight years uh, today, we have three seed rounds, uh, you know, two million or multiple million. And, and you, you don't even talk about it anymore. Uh, it's become a common thing. So that kind of shows you a bit of like how the ecosystem has evolved and, you know, many other things that we'll talk about in the next hour. Awesome. Gans, how, how about you? Yeah. So just like Erika, I came to Europe about five years ago. Uh, I lived in Milan, in Paris, and now in Barcelona. And I also come from this perspective as an outsider. Uh, two years ago, I started uh, my newsletter, Sea Table, that now goes out to about 12,000 people every Friday. And I cover essentially the strategic analysis of what's going on in European technology and in the past five years, uh, sort of what I've seen mostly as an outsider is uh, I'm, I'm very, very impressed about the trajectory. So Erika shared just one anecdote, but if you look at the macro view really and the, the numbers, just for instance, uh, from 2010 to 2014, the ecosystem raised about 30 billion euros and from 2015 to 2019, the ecosystem raised about three or four X that. So like that's just one number, um, but there are a few dozen like that that can show uh, the trajectory of the ecosystem. Let's get into how it changed, Eric. You were saying these these rounds are now you know just way more common and, and, and not even remarkable. What were some of the turning points that, that that we think sort of made that possible? So I like, for example, the the way that Nicola, my former colleague at the family, the way he talks about ecosystems. He defines them like an ecosystem is a mix of know how, capital, and rebellion. I think that Europe had the know-how bit uh, very well because we have, you know, a lot of um, scientists. We have more engineers than than the U.S. actually, and so that bit, you know, we've had it. But the the thing that was missing 
first was the the rebellion part so the mindset uh where people could you know think to build startups that will conquer global markets or go even go outside of their home country like i remember in france in the early days we had to actually convince founders to not pick a french name for their company or not buy the dot fr uh website uh and now you know that has changed uh we've had you know amazing companies in the and you know what's funny about europe is that we don't really have like a ecosystem making uh making company at the european level it's more like each ecosystem has kind of their own you know pride uh, in in ecosystem making companies for example in uh in estonia you have skype which of course you know it's a big it's a big success but it's kind of like what they're proud of and uh in sweden you have uh, spotify in france for example a big moment in the ecosystem was um creteo going public and becoming you know a, a billion dollar company because then that created liquidity and that created some excitement at the early stage that there were you know some liquidity scenario in the long run and and i could go on like you have rovio uh you know the angry birds uh makers and nordics you have king uh the makers of candy crush etc cetera, etc cetera. so it has been like a successive uh rise of different um companies uh that started you know more or less 10 years ago um that has been you know building momentum for the past 8 years and so to go back to the point of you know we have the rebellion we have the know-how and the only thing that has been missing so far is the capital but that has also been increasing over the past decade yeah and to to add a bit to Erica's point i think you mentioned a turning point for for the european ecosystem and what i think what Erica is trying to say is that it's not just one ecosystem right we say europe but in reality it's 30 so each ecosystem has its own turning point so skype in estonia crypto in france rovio in nordics uh Spotify in Sweden and uh, I could essentially keep going on. The other thing that it's it's very interesting that not pe- many people talk about is that by when Atomico started putting out the state, state of European tech report about 5 years ago that really was the turning point not for the ecosystem itself but for the narrative around the ecosystem. That started rallying people around one central public narrative uh, and we really started thinking about one ecosystem as Europe And and do you think that that will um ex- like talk talk more about that phenomena do you, do you expect that to accelerate do you expect that and if so what 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 could what could encourage that that trend which trend you mean the sort of one thing oh, yeah yep versus uh, uh-huh. like constant like you US is certainly not becoming one thing <laughs> like the constant <laughs> fragmentation that we have in our country yeah yeah so that's that's definitely a great question um this can be attacked or slashed from many angles right so if you think about europe versus the us like the us as you, as you mentioned has been becoming more and more inwards and this has been unifying uh, europe uh, in a way that said you still have all this complexity uh, around being fragmented because europe is fragmented across borders and cultures and languages and payment methods right so and, and a bunch of different things so I don't expect this fragmentation to go uh, away anytime soon. That said, increasingly from the outside, people are thinking about Europe as, as one thing. So going back to the report, like that has been quoted thousands and thousands of times and has been used as prime material for uh I don't know investment decisions and and we can see how for instance the amount of American and Chinese money uh has been increasing significant rates uh particularly in 2018 and 2019 so internally we're still going to see this fragmentation but from the outside it's still increasingly seen as a 
as one ecosystem. Yeah. Let's talk about looking looking forward a little bit. Where are sort of reasons to be optimistic and where are reasons to be sort of cautious in terms of uh, in terms of potential potential risks? In terms of uh, the risks of the uh, European ecosystem, I mean, the, at the individual level, I think that one of the main challenges that, that Europe faces is that, um, you know, historically the, there has been a low level of appetite uh, for risk. In, in a way, that has been a positive thing because um, it has kept uh, European founders uh, very frugal in terms of, you know, how to spend the money uh, that they raise. So I remember at some point, uh, you know, during, for example, like during the last crisis, for example, when there was not a lot of capital available, it just really, it really impacted a lot of companies that were, you know, raising lower amounts, etc. But in Europe, founders were already so used um, to, to not raising, you know, big rounds and having all that cash available that, you know, it, it, it didn't make that much of a difference. So we are used to being, you know, very, um, again, um, lean when it comes to, to spending venture capital. But then the, the, the you know, the, the flip side of that is that then founders, um, when, you, when we're talking about, for example, like blitzscaling or taking big bets in, a, in certain uh, markets, then uh, Europeans can, can fall short. And, and so that's why, um, you know, it's not only on the founders, um, it's also on the investors, you know, because sometimes you can be, you know, a big, big uh, risk taker and have that appetite and that ambition. But then when you have, you know, in your boardroom, then those plans get shut down basically by your investors. And I've seen, you know, many cases of, companies wanting to, to, you know, be very ambitious and, 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 and be aggressive and their growth, but then um, investors being kind of scared and, and not following in the next round or so. And so that's why um, I'm excited to see like um, U.S. players um, like Sequoia, Founders Fund, um, and others um, become active in Europe. Uh, but also like something that has changed in that regard is as the new uh, generation of European founders uh, who have exited their first companies and who know what it's like to build a company and who are, you know, less risk averse. So, and, and, and that kind of, they act as sort of role models for the ecosystem. They also angel invest uh, and support uh, the new generation. So each generation of, of companies that comes around gets better and better uh, in that sense. And at the macro level, uh, the biggest risk uh, for Europe is the, the growth stage uh, lack of funding. So basically, if you're racing uh, a growth round in Europe, there's like five people that you can talk to. And the, but that is changing as we have, again, more U.S. funds that are becoming active. And, and we have also, um, for example, in France, uh, a great initiative in terms of like uh, creating liquidity scenarios uh, for later stage companies. Uh, we have a six billion fund uh, for late stage uh, launched by the French government. And uh, yeah, so the, those are the, the main risks. I don't know if you, Gongs, uh, you have uh, other that you want to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing that is not super discussed is that early stage company formation is suffering. Less companies are being financed than ever before in Europe. Uh, and if you measure that by first time rounds, they have declined steadily since 2014. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing that I think it's interesting to discuss is regulation. In Europe, we just love regulation and we don't think too much about the second order consequences of that. Uh, and I don't think the pace of new regulation is uh, going to slow down anytime soon as the internet becomes more and more sort of part of the fabric of society. Um, in fact, I think, or I, I tend to agree with Ben Thompson that Europe is sort of driving straight into a senseless uh, fourth internet where the large like U.S. tech companies are actually the winners and our self-imposed red tape prevents us from building our own competitors or 
our own local champions. And finally, sort of the, the third risk, which is this more related to COVID, because uh, up until COVID exits or yeah, acquisitions were an upward tra- trajectory, but 2020 is on track to be the lowest uh, since 2012. So when you start thinking about that, I think one of the biggest challenges for Europe is our ability to recycle capital at scale, right? So start a company, grow a company, sell it, and then that money cascades down into the ecosystem, like Erica was mentioning, uh, Skype and Estonia, for instance, or Criteo and, 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 and France. So when you have this danger at the top and the acquisition slowed down, then sort of this liquidity fly- flywheel that powers the ecosystem might dry out. So that's, I think, uh, one of the biggest risks. Talk a little bit about what, what you think influences the sort of appetite for risk or, or sort of that that people can have o- over time or, or as in how, how do we make entrepreneurship, one, practically low, low risk and on deck is trying to do a bunch of stuff around that, of course, but then two, also just from a status perspective, low risk and what are sort of the dynamics, you know, present in sort of, a, you know, culturally in, in Europe? That's a very good yeah. question. I mean, you're touching up on something, Eric, that is very like rooted in European culture. So, I mean, I can have an outsider point of view because I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't born here. I wasn't raised here. I was raised in Latin America. So in my country and, you know, most of the region, people are entrepreneurial because they don't have a choice, right? I went to law school and for me, it was a pretty normal thing to kind of venture outside of that because a lot of people study law uh, and, and don't practice. But in Europe, the first thing that that struck me is that how people kind of tend to stay within the thing that they study, within the the kind of uh, trace uh, path. Uh, for example, again in the U.S., you have tons of people who do like liberal arts or just like study something and and then end up doing something completely unrelated. Um, and even like the backgrounds of people who start companies. Um, so I think in that sense, um, it is kind of a cultural thing in Europe that. And people don't really kind of venture out of, of those paths. So, you know, most people who start companies, I'll say in France, they've either been to kind of an engineering school or they've been to a kind of, a, you know, elite business school. And, and then people outside of that don't really go into startups or they haven't historically. Uh, and so I think that's like the first thing to kind of move past. And I think that on deck is really a great opportunity because it gives people a way to kind of, you know, here it is, the path. It shows you the path. Like, here it is. You can start a company. Come and do it with us. And this will be, uh, you know, the, the perfect environment to do that. So that, in that sense, I think um, it can be a game changer for Europe. And then uh, I'll let you uh, answer goals. Yeah, yeah, I have a bit of a rant on this because I'm also an outsider. I'm born and raised in Argentina. Uh, and when I think about, let's say, entrepreneurship in Argentina, you have no choice, right? If you want a decent life, you probably need to build something. And in the US, being an entrepreneur is celebrated, right? But in Europe, it's really not sort of the default path for ambitious people is consulting or finance or academia, uh, but dropping out of college, pursuing alternative education paths, starting a company, uh, that's not really celebrated. And I think that's because if you go through the traditional path, you get the money, you get the status. Why do anything else, right? And I'm not sure if this, this is reality. It's just mass, my perspective uh, as an outsider. But the good thing I think is this is changing, right? Increasingly, people or talented people 
uh, are, are seeing entrepreneurship or founding a company as an acceptable career path. So uh, whatever I can do to push that in that direction, I'm going to do it. Is part of it also that Europeans also just have more skepticism towards, you know, if someone was like, I want to build the next Facebook or next Google, is, is that as, as celebrate? Like, is it part of more skepticism towards capitalism in general and thus to participate in it is seen as less high, high status because it's le- seen as less positive for the world or, or obviously positive for the world? Uh, so, so basically, yeah, for sure. Like in France, being, for example, like I give you one example. In France, uh, being a salesperson is not, is not a glamorous job. I don't think it is like in anywhere in the world, but I, I know that we have a, a huge deficit of salespeople. And, and it's one of the roles that startups like struggle the most to hire for because it's, it's like ultimately what you're doing is, um, is making money, is selling something. And there is, there is this kind of stigma to being a salesperson in France. And it, it's all about the money. Uh, same for, for example, um, one of the wealthiest men in France, Xavier Niel, that you know, Eric, he, he's not really um, or, or hasn't been like a role model. Now he's starting to be because of all the work that he's doing with like Station F and with, um, you know, the, the free coding school, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately um, in France, we don't really admire wealthy people. That's, that's not something that you aspire to be. And, and that's why the, the kind of companies that come out of Europe tend to be you know, purpose-driven companies. And, uh, and that's why you have so many people, for example, in the research world that don't really go on and start companies because that's, that's not like a sexy thing to do. Uh, and to Gonzo's point uh, from early on uh, in France and, and I guess in other countries as well, you, people would rather say I'm unemployed than say I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, but that is changing for sure. The startup culture has arrived and is here to stay. And, and you know, it, it takes time. These things take time, but, but we're heading in the right direction. I think different cities or different countries value things differently. So in France, people might value, let's say, old stuff more than money, right? So aristocracy, for instance. Uh, I also lived in Italy, and in Italy, at least in, in Milan, of course, which is a very specific city in Italy, what's value is, is uh, status or being in, right? And in that way, you can signal to the group that you're important without actually being an entrepreneur, right? And in, and in countries like the U.S. or Argentina or the Dominican Republic, that like being an entrepreneur is a pretty good signal, right? So as, but as Eric said, like the startup culture uh, has arrived and is here to stay. And to, to that end, you know, there was this sort of period of time where everyone was trying to be the next Silicon Valley or sort of, you know, implement sort of principles from there. Um, Erica, how do you think about in terms of things about sort of Silicon Valley culture uh, that, that you think is particularly helpful for Europe or how do you think about that more broadly? So, so first time I went to San Francisco, I, so I started working in tech without ever having been to San Francisco. So it was kind of like something that I was a little embarrassed of. I was like, oh yeah, sure. I work in startups. I've never been to San Francisco. So it was kind of like the place that you had to visit, like to be legit <laughs> in startups. Uh, so when I finally went there, you know, I was expecting to be, I mean, I was in, in, in a lot of ways kind of blown away, but, you know, I was like, well, people here are certainly not smarter. They're not more talented. Like they are smart. They are talented, but like there's, I don't see like there's this huge difference compared to what I see back home. I mean, in, you know, in, in Europe. Um, and basically what I, what I realized is that like uh, San Francisco's secret is just being laser focused on building startups. It's like you have this whole city, uh, the, this whole you know geography uh, focused obsessively into building tech giants. 
And when you put that many resources and, and that much effort into something, you're, you're bound to see results. You're, and, and, you know, the thing that you were talking about, um, you know, the cynicism and the optimism is like, sure, when, when you're pitching your company uh, to somebody in SF or the Silicon Valley, they, for example, maybe that person saw Uber's first pitch and, and laughed at them. And then, you know, they had to <laughs> learn that lesson of, you know, humility. And, and, and so whatever you pitch, people tend to take you seriously. And I just think that in, in, in that sense, we, we, for example, I, I, I used to joke that an average entrepreneur in San Francisco can become a great entrepreneur just because you have that ecosystem kind of pulling you up and, and nurturing you. And you have that, that person who built a company before who's ready to help. You have that investor who's like ready to write the first check and you have all that talent available because there's just so many, uh, you know, tech companies in the area. And of course, the thing is like, what is that going to become now in this new world that we're living in? This is clearly an advantage for all the emerging ecosystems around the world. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the thing is like now in Europe, we are, we are catching up because we're starting to have that density. We're starting, like, it never happened to me seven or eight years ago that I would go to a party and I would run into somebody who's like, oh, I work at this startup. And now it happens all the time. So we are getting to that density. I don't think Europe will ever be as laser focused on startups as, as San Francisco has been, but that's probably a good thing because then we have all these interesting companies that come out of the mix of, you know, we are not just living in this tech bubble and, and you know, disconnected from the real world and building, you know, startups for startups. In Europe, we're actually tackling, uh, you know, serious um, societal issues. We're tackling micromobility. We're talking, we're creating insurance companies, new banks and uh, health services, et cetera, et cetera. Let's uh, let, let's segue to uh, to Omdek and, and, and Europe, uh, Erica. Why don't you talk about uh, our, our plans there? Why why go there and and uh, why don't you sort of get into it? Yeah. So I mean, I don't have to tell you the story of Omdek because you know it. <laughs> but basically, what I what I noticed uh, as an outsider is that you know you had this great program in San Francisco that was in person where people would go there for ten weeks and. And you know, explore companies' ideas, build new things, etc. And then I was actually supposed to come to San Francisco at some point and participate in the program, but then you know, COVID happened, uh, and uh, you kind of had to move everything to online. Um, I believe it was at the last second. Uh, but then you know, what happened was was truly magical because number one, uh, the team managed to create this experience um, virtually that was so close to those human, I mean, as close as you can be through a Zoom call through those, to those human interactions that we have offline. I was, you know, truly amazed um, to see that. And the second thing is that because you removed the barrier of having to come to San Francisco to attend the program, then all these applications from all over the world started pouring in. And so that's, that's a trend that I, I observed, you know, from the outside. Uh, and having done the program, uh, I just felt that, that we needed something like this in Europe and that we had to bring that to Europe. Uh, and, you know, through my previous experience, having worked, you know, seven years in, in the tech industry, uh, you know, you know, visiting uh, all the different tech hubs in Europe, Berlin, Paris, um, London, Barcelona, Lisbon, etc. I kind of had a, like a clear pathway of like how to make that happen. And so, you know, to get to the point on the Europe is about, you know, bringing that community together of, Founders who have built um, successful companies in the past, uh, people who have, you know, had um, senior roles uh, in uh, or, you know, early employees at, at big tech companies. And, and I think that the exciting part about Europe is that because we, we don't have um, the startup density that, that exists in the U.S. today, we have 
kind of these other kind of profiles, like somebody who's maybe had a, a senior level position at LVMH and had, you know, some a foot in tech, but actually part of this kind of uh, big company. So I'm excited to see kind of the mix of all these different profiles uh, here. Uh, and I think, you know, back to my previous point before, because uh, so many people want to build companies, but um, they want to be surrounded by, by other people who are also starting something new, also building a company. We can create this kind of virtuous uh, ecosystem for them. Yeah, that, that, that's awesome. Gans, why don't you share a little bit behind your inspiration to, to join on deck and where you're most excited about in, in the context of, uh, of Europe and, and beyond? Yeah, absolutely. So myself, um, I went through the On Deck Fellowship, right? Uh, I just left my full-time gig as head of growth. And I've been looking to explore what's next. And one of the questions that has been really resonated with me after I had a conversation with a friend who's an investor almost a year ago, just when COVID hit, was one of the best ways to advance a technology ecosystem and society is uh, to promote early stage company formation. And back then we were talking in the context of the European ecosystem, right? What should we look at when trying to analyze the impact of the pandemic, right? And how to avoid it, right? What are the risks? Uh, how do we make sure that we survive as an ecosystem and all that? But ever since I had that conversation and this friend doesn't really know it, but sort of something in me sparked, right? A light bulb. I don't know how to call it. And since then, I've been thinking about what's the best way to help more people start more companies. Uh, and I joined the fellowship to sort of explore that and ended up joining the on deck team to be the first growth hire. So Awesome. Uh, when we talk about Europe, let's talk about what sectors are, are sort of most, and this is sort of goes back to, you know, people were talking about building next Silicon Valley and then sort of the counter response was like, well, actually maybe just focus on what, what makes you unique in terms of how can you, you sort of like, where's your comparative advantage? How, how do you think about that, Eric, in terms of sectors that are, that are particularly exciting or, or what's sort of the best sort of fit for, for, for this, this region or regions? Yeah. Yeah. So we have many. So, for example, we have all the unsexy old industries. So we have uh, companies, for example, like um, Alan, who's building a, an insurance company uh, from scratch. Um, we have Luco, who's tackling things, also insurance company, but um, more like home insurance and that kind of thing. We have we've had actually uh, in terms of like fintech, the banks. Uh, we had some of the first uh, major. Uh, I think we had the first challenger bank in the world, if I, if I'm not mistaken, which was Revolut. And then, you know, followed by Monzo and N26. And, um, and now, for example, uh, we just have a bank, new bank that launched this week in France, that's uh, Memo Bank, which is, which is an actual bank. They have a license uh, and everything. Um, another exciting uh, market uh, for Europe is the mobility and the micro-mobility. So, for example, companies like Cowboy, Van uh, Move, Dance, from the previous SoundCloud founders, you know, it's, it's a huge market. And I think that um, Europe is a perfect place for these companies because you have so many uh, cities that are very uh, dense and, you you know, perfect for this kind of, for this kind of companies. Like people don't really drive in, this, in European cities. So it's a, it's a perfect market for that. Do you have other uh, that you want to talk about, girls? 
Yeah, absolutely. Something that's very interesting in Europe is deep tech. Uh, for me, that's very exciting. Uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, like Europe has over 6 million developers, it has 17 million scientists and engineers, and it has talent with deep tech experience. Just think about, let's say, DeepMind, right? Uh, one of the things about scaling a deep tech company is that there are some things that you can't really reason from first principles. Some things are counterintuitive. So having people that uh, have done it before uh, and then can join your own company to do it, like that's very, very interesting. So the, the, the deep tech sector for me is, is, is something I'm paying a lot of attention to, particularly moonshots, like stuff like Lilium, uh, I'd say. Like it's one of my favorite uh, European tech companies. So they're essentially building flying taxis, but they're not just building sort of the machine, the jets. They are trying to be like Uber, but for air transportation, right? Move people from, let's say, 30 kilometers to 300 kilometers, something like that in 20 to 45 minutes. So that could really change, for instance, how people interact with cities, right? It could shift the power from cities to, let's say, regions or countries, uh, or other things like ESAR Aerospace. This is um, an early bird-backed uh, company out of Munich. And what they're doing is they are essentially building a European competitor to SpaceX. Uh, and it's a very, very interesting opportunity, both uh, in monetary terms, but also geopolitically for Europe. So everything around deep tech, uh, around moonshots, uh, it's something that I pay a lot of attention to. It, it, zooming out here, if, if we could wave a wand and change anything about how the the ecosystem works, whether it's from a government or regulation perspective or a cultural perspective, uh, beyond what we've discussed so far, what are some things that, that come to mind for you? Uh, how, about, how about you, Erica? The first thing that, that I would change is uh, culture around stock options. Um, so uh, Index Ventures have done a great work of research into you know, benchmarking the different practices around Europe and you know, how different ecosystems give stock options to employees. Uh, and that has been you know, a big issue. We are far behind the U.S. in terms of stock options. Uh, and you know, a clear, for example, a clear example of why, why that is critical is uh, you know, Rocket Internet. Rocket Internet was an ecosystem builder company. They poured out so much talent into the you know, Berlin ecosystem and all over Europe. But for example, with companies that came out of Rocket, like Zalando, became billion-dollar companies, that uh, didn't make anybody rich in the ecosystem because basically um, the, the people running it were basically employees and uh, actually, Germany, according to Index's research, they are the, the, the company that's lagging behind the most in terms of um, stock options. And, and so the first thing, and this has been a uh, work in progress because I know that, you know, there's um, organizations doing, doing lobbying in Brussels. I actually personally participated in some lobbying efforts or, you know, discussions, dialogue with um, government officials in France on how to make regulations so that companies can give more. So there's, there's multiple things to tackle there. So the first thing is that, uh, the government needs to make it easier for companies to give out equity to employees in terms of, you know, not being costly, um, et cetera. And the second thing is that, you know, it's not just the founders um, who want to, who, like, it's not that founders don't want to give out equity. It's that the people that they're giving equity out to don't, don't really value it because they don't have the, you know, the culture of, of having, you know, skin in the game and, 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 and they haven't seen uh, company, big companies exit or, or will get acquired and other people get rich, et cetera. So it, it is also a work in progress of, you know, educating employees into why they should want to have stock options and why they should demand stock options from, from startups that they're working for. So that's, that's like for me the main thing, because then 
when those companies you know reach liquidity, then these are new founders that come into the ecosystem, new angel investors, and and just more money. Yeah, and that is um, that goes hand in hand with what we were talking about risk in terms of like willing to take sort of or willing take take some risk and, and but also receive more importantly the disproportionate upside. And the more I've always said, sort of like the more people that have ownership in companies like Facebook and Amazon, because I think in the U.S. we should not only give employees upside but also even users. And that's what, what crypto was trying to do in terms of like, if you contribute to a platform being valuable, you should see some upside for it. And that's a way just to align incentives and make people, you know, more people more excited about businesses growing because because it's in their direct interest. Agreed. It is in their direct interest in an indirect way in terms of taxes. Like the more, you know, money a company makes, the more theoretically they should get in taxes, but they don't, they don't see that sort of direct it doesn't like go into their pocket in the same way. It's too indirect for them. And so the more it just goes straight into their pocket when, when the stock goes up, the, the better it will be. Gans, how about you? Yeah, so for me, that'd be uh, a European startup visa, uh, both for founders and for employees. Because if you really think about growing an ecosystem, right, it's, it's hard to find a recipe because uh, a technology ecosystem is a complex system uh, where outputs are not super correlated with inputs. But one of the sort of the main ingredients is talent. So both founders are employees. And one way to incentivize more people to move from one place to another is to remove barriers. And visas are uh, barriers, uh, essentially. So I think that having a European started visa, that makes it not only easy, but also attractive to move from X. And X could be, let's say, the US or Argentina or Australia or anywhere, but having a European startup visa that helps people move to, to Europe to start companies. And then once those companies are scaling to attract talent from anywhere in the world, for me, like that if if I would have a superpower, that'd be like that's how, how, how I would apply it. And I think this is particularly interesting now when let's say as I, as I mentioned, the U.S. is becoming more and more inwards. So Europe now has this sort of opportunity to step up uh, and to play an even, even bigger role in sort of global uh, technology. So before, if, if like I think highly ambitious people thought about going to the U.S. Uh, to start something, but if that's not possible right now for whatever reason, um, it could be legal, right? removing visas or it could be cultural, don't, don't want it to go to the US, then Europe has the opportunity to position itself as sort of the default place for ambitious founders to go to. So to start a visa would be my answer. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, the, the French government has a, a, a French tech uh, visa program that has been uh, very popular. And I've actually witnessed a trend uh, in the past couple of years. I noticed that a lot of the French people, because basically in, in France, if you were really ambitious and you wanted to build a startup, you would go to San Francisco. Like that was, that was the thing that people did. So, you know, we lost a lot of great people. <laughs> we lost a lot of great people. That sounds terrible. Um, a lot of great people went to San Francisco to build their companies. Um, but then they started coming back a couple of years ago because um, basically the, the quality of life is just so much better here. You know, I don't have to like sell you on why Europe is a great place to live. Uh, but basically, for example, I had this, this friend uh, working at Square uh, he was there for five years, like had a pretty senior position. 
but then, you know, him and him and his wife were living in a one bedroom in San Francisco and like their baby was sleeping in the bedroom and they were sleeping in the living room. So, you know, like how can you be making, you know, six figure salary and not, and not afford like a decent place to live? Like that's just mind blowing. Right. Uh, and so people started to move back to France, uh, into Europe in general to have this better quality of life. So it started with people, you know, like from Germany, from Italy, from different places coming back home, basically. But now um, there's a second wave of, you know, just U.S., you know, people from the U.S. who want that same quality of life and who want to work with, you know, high growth uh, tech startups. And, and then the changing factor is that now that those, um, you know, high growth tech startups have raised, you know, mega rounds, like 100 plus million uh, rounds, they can't afford to have that kind of seasoned talent. Uh, come in and 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 these are people who have experienced hyper growth who have experienced you know scaling tech companies and and I think that that is also a trend that that is only going to accelerate in the current climate and maybe to add a bit more to that Estonia is another great example of a great uh, startup visa program if you think about Estonia it's a country with over a bit over a million people uh, but their ecosystem is extremely uh, strong with companies out of that, like PipeDrive, uh, TransferWise, Vatif. So a big reason why that happens is it's because it's super easy to bring foreign talent, uh, ambitious people to both start and join companies. So maybe in closing, uh, Erica, any any last um, la- last words of encouragement for, for people in Europe to, to get involved in, in, in On Deck Europe? Yeah, so I can answer that from my own perspective, right? From from being an on-deck fellow. And I think that whether you're exploring an idea or looking for a co-founder or just trying to get a company that you started off the ground, the power of having a community of supporting, like, let's say, would-be founders who are in the same stage that you are, like, unless you experience that, that's very uh, underrated. So... If you're in that stage uh, and you're looking for support, then absolutely consider on deck. Yeah, I mean, the first months of, of starting a company are like the most um, terrifying <laughs> and the most exciting, exhilarating moments that you ever live. Uh, and for me, you know, having a support system, you know, giving, especially something that really resonates with people is, is giving some structure to that whole exploration process of, you know, you're starting something new, you maybe have some idea of what you want to do, or you're building that first product. Um, it's really important to be surrounded by, yeah, like, like gone said, like people who are like-minded people who are, you know, kind of in the similar stage, it's something truly magic. Like you don't really know it. And I, I certainly didn't, you don't really know it until you experience it. The magic that happens when you put uh, 200 people together who are all, you know, having maybe existential questions, who are all exploring startup ideas, we're all building something new. Just the excitement uh, and the and the energy that happens when you put, bring those people together is 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 really valuable and special. That's a perfect place to to, to wrap. Where can people le- uh, learn more and, and find you guys uh, uh, online, uh, Erica? So my Twitter is Erica Batista. And then uh, if you want to learn more about OnDeck and uh, our plans for Europe, then that's beyonddeck.com slash Europe. Awesome. Gans? Yeah, to add to that, so my newsletter, ctable.com. Um, on Twitter, I'm Gon Sanchez S. Gans, Erica, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a great episode. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.com.
www.vc.com.